Good morning, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Too bad we have to meet in this way again this morning. Hopefully soon we'll be able to meet face to face once again. I miss my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Before we begin this, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence here this morning and thank you that we can meet together in this way, even though it's not the most desirable way for us. But we can meet virtually and worship you together, and we thank you for this opportunity. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and use me to speak your word, not to bring glory to myself, but that you may be glorified in all of this. Seal my lips so that they cannot speak anything contrary to your word, but your, that your word will be amplified here this morning and that you will be glorified among us. We commit this morning into your care, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I based this message on... Uh, a scripture found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which reads, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. This passage speaks to us of practical, personal application of the Word of God to our lives that's indicated by the use of the concepts of teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. I'm struck by the reference to all Scripture. So do we believe that this includes all the Word of God, genealogies, and etc.? Let's find out together, shall we? In the Bible we find God's grace woven into everything, even into the obscure names and the seldom-read genealogies. God's grace is everywhere. I heard a couple of stories, which I won't take the time to tell you about now, but I heard a couple of stories from my youth about how God used a genealogical record to reach certain people around the world. And Today we want to look at a genealogy found in Matthew 1, 1 to 17. Most of you will be familiar with it. It's the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's a genealogy with a list of names, and we want to just pick out a few characters from this list. If I were to give this any title at all, I'd say... I'd call it unsavory characters. The first two characters we want to look at are Judah and Ta Tamar. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. And we'll pick it up in verse 1 of that chapter, J J uh, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. The record of the gene genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob 
the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's Matthew 1, verses 1 to 3. Now, if we aren't familiar with our Old Testament, we might just read past that without realizing how shocking these words are. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 38, and we'll look at the story of Judah and Tamar. Everything from chapter 37 to the end of the book is about Joseph, except for one chapter, Genesis 38. Verse 1 reads, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Genesis 38, verse 1. Now it tells us that during this time, the best, and the best way to understand this is from the time of Genesis 37 until the family goes back to Egypt and reconciles, that time period is what's necessary for the events of chapter 38 to take place. So these two stories run simultaneously or concurrently. There's the story of Joseph and there's the story of Judah. And both of them take over 20 years to accomplish. So they're going on at the same time. Most commentators believe that the reason Judah left home was because, it was because he simply couldn't live with his father's grief one more day. Day after day, he sees his father in absolute agony because of the plan that he had devised to sell his brother into slavery, and he couldn't take it anymore. So he moves away from home and is gone for well over 20 years. Verse 2. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And the long and short of it is that he marries her. When you go back and look at what God told Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew people, were not supposed to marry outside of their race. They were uniquely called to be an ethnic people. And she will remain nameless. This woman that he marries will remain nameless throughout the story. That's a way of saying this is not a Jacob and a Rachel love story. This is about a reckless, lust-filled, and selfish man. And we go on to read, So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again, and he bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Jezeb that she bore him, verses 3 to 5. So just kind of matter-of-factly, three sons. Verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now we're immediately struck that while Judah's Canaanite wife remains nameless in the story, immediately Tamar is named, and we get the indication that she's going to be a player. But Ir, Judah's first born was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Verse 7. That's all we know. How evil was this guy that God took him out? Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring in your, for your brother. Verse 8. Now in our culture, this would be rather awkward. It's not exactly the way we operate. But in this ancient culture, 
this would have been considered the honorable thing to do. Every, everything was about a family line. Everything was about carrying on your name. So in this case, if the older brother dies, the next brother is required to produce a son. And that son would belong to his deceased brother. And the family line would travel through that son. So what Judah is asking is actually a very honorable thing to do in that particular culture. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So he refused to fulfill his obligation to his brother. And we don't have to guess as to why. The text tells us. Because he understood that if he produced a son for his brother, then his brother's son would get the inheritance of the firstborn. But if there was no offspring, then the inheritance would come to him. To Onan, that is. So while he was in, in essence, uh, enjoying his relations with his brother's wife, he practiced a form of birth control to make sure that she would not have a child. And so he received the inheritance, so that he would receive the inheritance. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So God took his life also, verses 9 and 10. God says, you know, I think that was evil too. And he takes them out. So now here Judah has two sons married to Tamar. Both of them are dead. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house, verse 11. Basically, Judah says, you know, we're going to have to wait until Shelah grows up a little bit. But if you do the math, he would have been plenty old enough. What he is thinking, the text tells us, is that there's something wrong with this woman. She's got to be cursed or something. Because each time one of my sons marries her, they end up dead. You have to understand, in ancient culture, that was as shameful and as, humility, as humility, uh, humiliating as it could be for Tamar. She had had two husbands. Both of them died. No offspring. Sent home to dad. Used. Abused. Discarded devastating for her. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, and he, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, verse 12. So Judah's wife dies. Notice, n not even in the death scene, death scene is she named. There's a message in that. Now one of the things that we have to notice in all of this is that there isn't one mention of the slightest bit of grief on Judah's part. You can't miss the contrast between Jacob in chapter 37 and Judah in chapter 38. Jacob is emotionally devastated by the loss of his son whom he dearly loved. Judah lost his two sons and a wife, and there wasn't one word of grief or compassion. Again, the writer is wanting to paint a picture of this selfish, reckless, 
lust-filled person. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she removed her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Enamin, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. Verses 13 and 14. When Tamar goes out about her father-in-law, finds out about her father-in-law coming to Timnah, immediately she takes off her widow's clothes, puts on her prostitution clothes, and she devises a plan. She now knows that Sheila will not be given to her. Her only hope is to pretend to be a prostitute and to sit by the road which raised an interesting question. What did she know about her father-in-law? Where did she know, how did she know that this would be the right plan? Well, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and propositioned her, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She was wearing this veil. Verses 15 and 16. In this case, the Hebrew phrase used by Judah when he propositioned her is meant to sound as crude and vulgar as possible. The first reader would have understood this as unbelievably crude and vulgar. In other words, it's trying to paint a picture of this man. He's selfish, he's reckless, he's lust-filled. He sees this prostitute by the side of the road and he's just abrupt and he's vulgar when he speaks to her. That's the intent here. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me, he said. He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give me a, a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived, and then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's clothes. Verses 16 to 19. So she begins to negotiate the deal. Okay, what's this worth to you? Well, I'll give you a lamb, he says. I just don't have one on me right now, so I'll send it when I get home. She says, okay. That's a deal, but I need, need some sort of a security just to make sure you won't rip me off. He says, okay, what do you want? She says, in today's language, she would have said, in today's society, she would have said, I want your driver's license, I want your wallet, and I want your credit cards. That would be the equivalent. We're told that Tamara becomes pregnant. She conceives, she goes home. She takes off her prostitution clothes. She puts on her widow's clothing. Now that part of the text is saying she's not a prostitute. She's a woman who has been shamed. She's a woman who has been used, abused, and discarded. And now she has been backed into a corner. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So he turned to Judah and said, 
I do not find her. In other words, he's saying, hey, we try to find her and pay the bill, but we couldn't find her, so let's move on. It was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned, verse 24. You have to understand here how absolutely shocking that would have been, even to the first reader. Even someone in the ancient world would have understood this to be unimaginably, unimaginably shocking. This woman is an embarrassment to her. He sees that this as an opportunity to eliminate her. Bring her out and I'll burn her to death. In the ancient world, it wasn't 20 years of appeals. It would have been carried out this day, and that's exactly what transpires. It was while that she was being brought out. So they go get her, bring her to her father-in-law. When she comes in the room, she says, I'm with child by a man to whom these things belong. She said, please examine and see whose signet ring, cords, and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as they did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. When she is brought out to be burned to death, she says, well, this putting into our words, oh, by the way, I have a driver's license here. I have some credit cards here. I wonder if you might look at them. This is the father of the child. Of course, Judah figures it out pretty quickly and states, she's more righteous than I. Now, I don't think that the text is saying that anybody in the text is righteous. I think her behavior was offensive to God, but you understand what has been done to her. She was desperate and came up with his plan to do something. What he is saying is, the reason she stooped to this behavior is not because she's a prostitute or a bad person, but I pressed her into a corner, and she had no hope in life. And that's why she did what she did. He's saying, I'm the one to blame because I pressed her into that circumstances. Interestingly enough, that's the end of the story for Judah. Judah virtually disappears. That's it. Chapter 39 again picks up to Joseph's story. Joseph could not have been more different than his brother Judah. When tempted, when seduced, he chose to do the right thing with integrity and morality. And that was a dramatic contrast between him and his brother Judah. The rest of Genesis is the Joseph narrative, the favorite, favored son, the favored child, the man of character, the man of integrity, a high performer who becomes number two man in the world, the prince of Egypt. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 49, this, de uh, this is a done deal. We know exactly how this is going to work out. The seed is going to go from Jacob to Joseph and on. That's why we're absolutely shocked when we get to Genesis 49 and find out that the seed doesn't go through Joseph, the high performer. It goes through Judah. Not only does it go through Judah, it also goes through Judah and his relations with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. That child would be the seed of promise. 
It's absolutely shocking. It goes against everything that we think is decent and right. We don't know what to do with this. It's just so unbelievably scandalous. This is not a story that you want in your family tree. This is embarrassing. This is shameful. This is the kind of story we want to purge from our family line and hope no one would ever find out. You would think when Matthew was recording the genealogy of the king, the genealogy of God become flesh, the genealogy of the Messiah, he would slip past this one as quickly as possible and hope nobody notices. But as a matter of fact, he does exactly the exact opposite. Again, in this genealogy, other than Mary, there are only four women named, and the first woman named in the genealogy is Tamar. If you had a story like this in your family tree, why would you focus your attention on it? Why would you make it jump off the page? Why, would you, 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 why wouldn't you hide it and hope nobody knows? Unless that's the point. Unless that's the point that God himself was going to enter into the garbage heap of humanity to seek and to save those who are lost. Those who have been used, those who have been abused, those who have been discarded, those whom the world says have no value. Isn't that the whole point? We live in a garbage heap and desperately need a savior. Isn't the, only, the whole point that he would enter into the mess even to the degree that the mess would be, scandalous, would be scandalously represented in his family line? Isn't it God's way of saying that his ways are not like our ways? One of the reasons why grace is so hard to process and so hard to fully embrace is because it is so other than anything we will, experience, we will ever experience in this life. It is so other than. At times it surprises us. At times it shocks us. I think at times it even offends us. And it goes contrary to everything we think is right and decent. I mean, the grace of God is so unbelievably scandalous that who knows, God may actually choose you and me to change the world. Well, that's the story of Ruth and Tamar. There's a few other characters I'd like to mention out of this genealogy. One of them is Ruth. Ruth was a scandalous woman through no fault of her own. She was very different from the other people in the story. She was a Moabitess. Now to us, that may have no meaning, but to the Hebrew reader, the first reader, these words were scandalous. They hated the Moabites. The Moabites were their enemy. The Moabites were pagan, idolatrous people. It wasn't Ruth's fault that she had Moabite blood running through her. It wasn't her fault that she was born during one of the darkest periods in the history of the, of the Hebrew people. It wasn't her fault that the, original, that the origin of her people goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 19 in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God is going to destroy the city of Sodom, Lot and his wife and their daughters escaped. His wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt, but Lot and his two daughters escaped. They find themselves living in a cave, and the daughters believe that they will never have a family. So they decide to get their father drunk. They have relations with their own drunken father, to produce children. 
out of that would come a son by the name of Moab, who would be the father of the Moabites. These people were scandalous from day one. Yet in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that Ruth had no control over, she made one, of the, she made one right decision after another, to the degree that we, here we are thousands of years later, and people are still talking about her. People still admire her, and there's a book in the Bible actually named after her. If you have a Bible, turn to us, turn with us to Ruth chapter 1. Short, four chapters. It's a bit of a challenge to go through four chapters in just a few minutes, so I'll read some of it, and I'll just explain some of it. We pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judea, in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other one was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was left bereft of her two children and her husband. That's Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. That kind of sets the stage for our story. The book of Judges, then, represents what many people believe was the darkest time in the history of the Hebrew people. The, re the repeated line was, Every man did, right what, did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of pagan, idolatrous worship. They drifted far from God. It was a time of great violence. It was a time of great evil. Just a very difficult time to be alive. The story of Ruth is impressive. But if you put the story of Ruth up against the times in which she lived, it was really impressive. A remarkable woman, especially given to the time in which she lived. They were experienced a famine, which was part of God's discipline to get his people back on track so he could bless them again. Rather than enduring that and realizing the need to come back to God, Elimelech gets the idea that we're out of here. We're going to find greener pastures. And much to our shock, they decide to go to the land of Moab. During the time they lived in Moab, Elimelech's two sons then marry Moabite women, which was directly prohibited by, God, by Old Testament law. So here's Naomi, a Hebrew woman living in a foreign land with two Moabite daughters-in-law, and that's how the story begins. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So you get the picture that it's time to go home. Now I'm going to tell you just a little bit of the story from there in order to save time. She engages in a conversation with her daughters-in-law. She says, you know, I need to go back home. Uh, there's really no hope for you there. There's no future for you there. 
life will be a disaster for you. So you need to go back home. You need to go back home to your families. You need to go back home to your gods. I'll go on my way. You go on your way. Verse 14. They left up their voices. They lifted up their voices and wept. And Oprah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. In that verse, you get a kind of sense of as to where this story is going. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, but it's a kiss goodbye. Ruth clings to her. It's a very strong word. As a matter of fact, it's, very, it's the very same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis 2, verse 26. If you have a King James Bible, it talks about leave father and mother, leave and cleave. Well, this word cleave, it means glued together. It's a very strong word. It means that Ruth was hanging on and she was not going to let go. Verse 15. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where, I, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. When you, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Verses 15 to 18. Now this is one, this, this is one of the more remarkable statements of loyalty in the entire Old Testament. Ruth is a remarkable woman. Naomi decided there was no sense in arguing further, so, so on they go. Verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was astir because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And they said to them, And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Verses 9 to 21, 19 to 21. So they arrived back in Bethlehem, and the text tells us there's quite a stir. It was basically meant, it would basically mean there was a lot of talk. There was some degree of shock. It's, pretty it's a pretty expressive term. Now, was that because Naomi had just aged so much? I'm missing a page here. I don't know what I did. So do, does it mean we have to start all over again or no? Anyways, that's the story of Ruth. I'm just going to end that story of Ruth. I'm missing part of my notes here, and I can't remember it all. So, uh, oh, no, here's the notes. I'm sorry. Now, was that because Naomi had just aged so much in 10 years? 
Was it because they figured out Elimelech and the boys were dead, or was it because she was walking through the door with a Moabite woman? And pro I mean, probably all of the above, but clearly she was the center of talk. So Naomi returned, and with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law who had returned from the land of Moab, verse 22. Again, this book is so skillfully written. Look at verse 22. Look at the kind of descending order in terms of why Naomi was in the circumstances she was in. Naomi returned. Okay, uh, we know she was gone, but with her, Ruth, with her, Ruth the Moabitess. This is the first time that Ruth gets the label. When Ruth was home, she was Ruth. But she wouldn't be Ruth again. Now she was Ruth the Moabitess. As you read through the story, the label never leaves her. There's another, that brings us to another scandalous story. It's the story of Rahab the prostitute. I'm not going to say much about her, except that was a very scandalous story as well. And it's also, her name is also included in this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So we have, then we have the story of David. He's also in this genealogy. David, actually, we should mention both David and Bathsheba. Now we all know about David. He was considered to be the greatest king ever to rule over Israel. His beginnings were humble. In his days growing up on the family farm, he was a shepherd boy and probably wasn't highly educated at all. Many of the writers of our Bible, Old and New Testament, were not highly educated, and I love that. It just makes it easier for most of us to identify with them. Sometimes I try to imagine what his days were, out, were like out on the fields with his sheep. He probably had much time to think and meditate. I wonder how many of the Psalms were written by him out in the fields when he was tending his father's sheep. He wrote a great portion of the Psalms, which have blessed many of us, as they have many others throughout history. The story of David's greatest failure we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I won't read that, but I'm just going to go on to make some comments about David's failure. So David, the one called a man after his own heart, the one God called a man after his own heart, did all these evil things, yet he plays a prominent role in the, in the family line of Jesus. First he looked and lusted, then he committed adultery, then he engages in a great government cover-up. Maybe political and government cover-ups are not so unique to our present day or recent history as some of us might think. Not only was he an adulterer, he was also a liar, deceiver, and a mass murderer, but he was in the family line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the reason I call him a mass murderer is when you look at that story closely in Second uh, Samuel 11, you're going to see that when the report comes back to David from the military conquest, the messenger brings them a long list of people who have died, and they've all died in that battle with Uriah. So now David is not just, he didn't just order Uriah's death, he ordered mass murder is what he did. And yet he's in this lineage. Well, there's one more name in this uh, genealogy I want to refer to this morning. 
Her name is Mary. I'm going to read that verse, Matthew 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is also, in, an, in another way, a scandalous story, although Mary did nothing scandalous, but can you imagine the talk behind her back? A young girl betrothed to be married to Joseph, just carrying on a normal life in the ancient Hebrew tradition and culture. In that culture, it was customary for parents to decide who you marry. And at a predetermined time, the couple would become what they called betrothed. And it was somewhat, somewhat similar to what we call an engagement in our culture today, but with much stronger ties and implications. The betrothal period would be a year, and the only way out would be divorce. Well, Mary conceived a child by the Holy Spirit who would be called the Son of God. But a pregnancy, being what it is, is difficult to cover up for very long. So when Joseph, her betrothed, finds out about this, of course he would have been shocked and embarrassed, but not wanting to expose Mary, his beloved, to public shame and disgrace, decides to secretly divorce her. But then an angel comes to speak to Joseph and tells him not to be afraid to marry her and that the child she will bear will be the Messiah. Just imagine Mary, chosen by the Lord to be the mother of the Messiah and with child outside of wedlock. There must have been whispers. The rumors would have been running wild. People today would say, what a loser. We would think, what a strange way to bring a Savior into the world. This was God's sovereign plan. One of, one of the greatest things about the Bible is that its heroes are presented with their faults, and flaws, and failures, not just their feats, fame, and faith. David committed adultery and then had a man killed or a whole bunch of people killed to cover it up. Jonah ran away in direct obedience to the Lord. Noah got drunk. Jacob was a liar. Simon Peter denied Jesus three times, and the list goes on. They were imperfect people who sinned and fell short. They, they should give hope and encouragement to you and me because we aren't perfect either. There are times we're going to blunder. We're going to mess up, and we're going to sin. But every time we do, we have the pages of Scripture to remind us that God forgives. He loves us despite who we are, and he can use messed up people. The next time you fail, remember that we serve a God of second chances. Remember that he's not shocked or surprised that we've blown it. Remember that nothing you can do can make him love you less. What unlikely places have you seen God's grace showing up in your life? How can focusing on God's big story help you to find the grace in your part of the story?